0: Hello, and
1: welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode is our third episode in our continuing coverage of the novella Silhouette. If you're reading along with us in Endangered Species, we'll be covering up to page 488. We also want to let you know that we have just released our annual installment
0: of Gene Wolfe's Letters Home from the Korean War over on Patreon. We've put out an episode talking about his letters from September 1952 when he was still in basic training. We had a lot of fun with that because it turns out that mostly in basic training, Gene Wolfe was just watching comedy musicals. Uh, so <laughs> we hope you'll check that out and, uh, and enjoy that as much as we did.
1: Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, we're covering these one month at a time. We're releasing them about once a year. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Fun. Well Gene Wolf is still in basic training and kind of in I don't know the comedy version of the army which basic training is so <laughs> uh, it was it was a, a huge joy for us to read that. We do hope you'll check that out over on patreon.
0: Right. At some point, these letters are going to become a lot more serious than they have been, though we did actually talk about some serious topics on this episode as well. I mean, there was an attempted suicide in his basic training unit, for example. And we should say, too, that since this is going to be our last episode for the year, uh, we're going to be taking our our holiday break after this one. uh, We should also mention that next month on Patreon, we're going to do our other annual tradition, which is to discuss a Christmas-themed SF story by Connie Willis. We've already done Miracle. We've done In, So this year, the story is in capelius's toy shop, which we hope you'll also want to check out. And of course, we want to just say a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters because you're the ones who make this show possible. So thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you. And if you listen to this show, you listen to other shows on Clay Temple Media, and you're thinking about checking us out on Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash Clay Temple Media. Check us out. If you want to support us, we would love your support if you're a fan of our work. If not, we are still happy to do this and interact with you in the ways that we can. But we have a lot of work to do today. So Glenn, let's talk about this third section of Silhouette. So last time we left off with
0: Johan talking to the HAL 9000 in secret. And now as we, we start out this section, we're we're back in Johan's quarters where he's attempting to deal with all of the crazy things that are happening to him he gets out his voice right, which is a handheld digital recorder. And, and we actually saw the voice right years ago when we did Blue Mouse. I mean, it was like three years ago that we did that. Uh, we talked about this last episode as well. We were looking ahead here, but he uh, pulls out his voice right, this handheld digital recorder, and he records a personal log. And I'm going to read most of this entry. And then in a little bit, I'm going to let Brandon explicated. Uh, But I want to dwell on something before I even get into it, which is that the date we learn here is June 5th, 2214. And I have been unable, uh, as we've been going on, I have been unable to resist making Star Trek jokes all the way through this story. (laughs) And they are apt for sure here, of course. And they were when we did Alien Stones as well. But this date, 2214, this date makes that very clear because Star Trek also is set in the 23rd century. And so I think Wolf is really inviting that comparison here. But all right, let's read this entry, and then let's talk about it. I have been searching my books and borrowing others, looking for attested cases of multiple presents. I have found several, as Padre Pio in the 20th century and Goethe's friend in the 18th, though I have found none dating from modern times. For the entire absence of such reports after 2150, I can postulate several explanations. For example, all the earlier reports may be falsifications. This is certainly the explanation accepted by most of the investigators who have looked at the old reports, and maybe the true one, though human beings are not noticeably more honest now than they were in earlier times, when the remnants of the old feudal system, including its fetish of personal honor, were still strong. In fact, in most respects, we today are less honest. A second explanation, that accepted, I think, by most of those who have witnessed such things, is that it is the soul the astral body which appears. This may be true, though I think not, but it is in fact no explanation but a second mystery. Offhand, it would seem impossible that the living body could be dissolved in one place and recondensed without a fatal disruption of its functions, but the body is only an immense community of microorganisms, each, as has been known for hundreds of years, capable of existing and reproducing in a satisfactory environment without reference to the rest. The personality which conceives of itself as existing without interruption from birth to death, has no physical reality since no cell of the body endures for more than half a dozen years. Rather, it is like the spirit of some long-continued enterprise which survives the extinction of generations. And uh, that is all we get of this personal log. I mean, it's a lot, but that is all we get of this personal log because Johan at this point is interrupted by a rapping at his door. So before we see who is there, we're going to pause and we're going to talk about this a little bit.
1: There are a lot of directions to take this passage <laughs> in. You know, first, we have Gene Wolfe trying to uh, justify or maybe solve the use of transporters and teleporters yeah. <laughs> in Star Trek, which he might find extremely problematic. Uh, because what is the body? You know, so that's one issue. We have this problem of uh, lack of an overriding ethic or moral system. Uh, that kind of governs people through soft power and uh, social pressure. That's what he talks about with honor and people are less honest. But boiled down to its basics, I think Johann is investigating two issues. The first issue is the, you know, quote unquote, hard problem of consciousness, which is essentially the problem of how a variety of physical phenomena and sensory interactions with a material environment Coalesce into something like a constant personality, uh, and that constant personality is maybe not best described in terms of the material brain processes that we can witness. This is the gap in philosophy of mind between, uh, you know, neuroscience and psychology. Like, how how do we explain this? The second issue is, you know, maybe a question of: upon what level of analysis do we cease? To comprehend the material world, do we look at the body at the smallest level in terms of the microorganisms that are all over our skin? You know, like dust mites or uh, things, or bacteria, or even say viruses, which is uh, a big deal right now when we're recording, uh, that influence our lives in ways that we cannot detect with our own eyes, and each have their own patterns and lives, so to speak. Is that? What a body is—a collection of these invisible material forces, or at least invisible to the naked eye—and if that is the case, are humans not best described as as a, like a complex system of microorganisms that cannot comprehend the larger system that they're a part of? So, you know, in other words, are there things that are so large that we participate in? If we're going to take this analogy to this level, to the level of the. Human personality the the coalescence of the material world into a singular being are we something that's so small as a microorganism is to the human body that there are things that are so large that we participate in and have an influence on without even having any knowledge of it or maybe that there are things that are just too large to see and, and comprehend that influence our lives that control our lives in ways that We just do not have the levels of analysis and the tools to make sense of. You know, even this could even be things of our own making, like the ship in this story. It's so large, even though it's made by humans, ostensibly, that we have a word for it, ship, but the way it controls the lives of the passengers, like, say, bringing the crew quarters close to the officer quarters. So Emil is closer to Johan. You know, what is guiding those decisions? And yet they have a profound impact on the life of Johan, the life of this story. And this is really tough stuff. You know, it's philosophy of mind stuff. And it's crazy thought experiments about what what the material world is, what the body is, what the soul is, uh, what the personality is. But here, at the end of the day, Johan is just asking some questions about ghosts and and spiritual occurrences (laughs) projections of the soul where do they come from what are they so on the simplest possible level johan is wondering about ghosts right i don't
0: think i emphasized enough as we were getting into this that what he's doing here is trying to figure out what is happening to him right he suspects that he's teleporting somehow or astral projecting or something down to the surface of the planet and he's trying to figure out if that's possible and if it is how is it happening and, and presumably what he really wants to know is how do I make it stop and you know and and wolf isn't really writing this I think with a lot of panic, uh, or that type of empathy. Uh, Johan doesn't strike us. Johan does not seem at all to be a sort of person who will panic. In fact, he definitely isn't. That's that's the arc that we're going to see here. But I, I know that if I were in this place, right? like If, if I really thought that at some point yesterday, uh, I had astral projected someplace, I would be really freaked out about that right now and would be really interested in these questions as well. And that's what Johan is doing, even though he's recording this personal log with this kind of almost dispassionate, um, purely kind of scientific. Approach to it. I, I want to say one more thing. I know. I know we want to talk about some of the references in here as well, Brandon. But I, I do want to. But I do want to say one more thing before we go on, which is to kind of tie this back to, to Star Trek a little bit. The problem of the are our bodies actually still our bodies if none of the components of our bodies are the components we were born with I mean this is a, a classical ph- philosophical question that is usually dubbed the ship of Theseus uh, that's what it was called in uh, ancient Greek philosophy uh, idea of uh, envisioning a, a ship you know Theseus has a, a ship and every year he replaces some of the boards and nails and the sails and so on the components of the ship but 20 years later 30 years later he still says this is my ship this is the ship of Theseus even though none of its components are the original ship that he built 20 or 30 years ago that's the uh, the metaphor that gets used for this in uh, uh, in ancient Greek philosophy and intersecting that with Star Trek I want to think back to literally a year ago when we had Mike Morrison on with us as a a guest on our episode about La Bafana, who hosts uh, one of my favorite podcasts, the Star Trek and Philosophy podcast called Metatrex. Uh, He and his co-host Zach Fruling there love to talk about The Ship of Theseus, but of course, because they are a Star Trek podcast, they call it The Starship of Theseus. And there was no way I could read this monologue without thinking about their little in-joke there because Gene Wolfe is signposting so much at the top of this that he is thinking about Star Trek as well. So, here we have on the page, the starship of Theseus. And uh, I just wanted to wanted to shout that out.
1: Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I, yeah, this section, of course, refers to the ship of Theseus. But it, in a weird way, Wolf is dealing with like microbiology as being part of the system of the human body, which is usually not a part of the examination of the ship of Theseus problem. Uh, and, and this approach is really interesting. And Wolf makes two references here about, as we said, this kind of coalescence of the material world into a coherent singular personality. And the references and the ability to project one's soul outside of the body and what that might mean. The first is to Padre Pio, and the second is a reference to Goethe's friend. This reference took me a really long time to track down, and I went through like a bunch of New Age websites, and then had to <laughs> cross-reference them with uh, with encyclopedia articles, and then eventually I found this book that came out, I believe, in the 1920s, called "Phantasms of the Living," which is about spiritual projection uh, and people's experiences with the spirit world. It's a it's a parapsychology book. It was written by a. You know, a PhD in psychology who got really into parapsychology, which is, you know, the soul, um, questions about spiritual existence. But this book, uh, which may have been debunked over time, relates a story <laughs> from uh, from Goethe, allegedly about how he was out with this friend in in, in a town. It could have been Weimar, and he. His other friend was in this other place, and then he becomes convinced that he's he's in this like dreamlike or trance-like state, that he has seen this other friend who was somewhere else in town, like bending over and picking a flower or something like that. And he knows that that friend wasn't there. But then when he gets back home to his house in this other town, he discovers that his friend had arrived very recently and was sleeping by the fire. So he had this premonition, really, and saw his friend as a projection of his own mind or as a premonition or as precognition or something like that. I don't know. This story sounds really apocryphal to me. And I don't know if there's any other reference to this story outside of Phantasms of the Living. Uh, For you Goethe scholars out there, please let me know. I could not find it. But you know, from what I gather, Phantasms of the Living is, is something of a classic text in parapsychology and paranormal experiences in general. That was pretty cool to discover. I wonder if Wolf had a copy of this or if he came across this story somewhere else. Right. And silhouette here even opens up with this
0: epigraph from Ambrose Bierce, the story uh, about astral projections. So one wonders if Wolf didn't just have some kind of uh, astral projection or parapsychology reader on his desk that he was uh, you know, just thumbing through, flipping through as he goes about his day that has has, uh, led to the creation of this story.
1: Yeah, I mean, there is one book I'm going to reference later on that I'm certain uh, Wolf would have had a copy of, or at least knew of, and I wonder if that book has made reference to phantasms of the living. I'm not sure, um, but it's going to be worth investigating. You know, for our <laughs> year in review show, I'll, I'll try <laughs> to track down a co- track down a copy of that book and uh, see what we can make of it and how it influenced silhouette, but. Padre Pio is the second reference that Wolf makes here. He is a really well-known 20th century saint uh, who was known for you know, living with the stigmata. He was able to subsist on communion wafers and wine alone for long stretches of time, like 20 plus days. Uh, he performed miracles and healings and levitations and other sorts of mystical fare. And you can go and read about him in the process of becoming a saint and the investigators in his case. It's a fascinating uh, cult mystery, really, of the 20th century. But the most relevant reference to Padre Pio here is that he was able to bilocate himself, which is to be in two places at once, which is astral projection. He could appear in a place where he wasn't. So at the very least, Padre Pio was a, a man with a gift for self-myth making. Um, but Wolf has in mind here by location.
0: And as you pointed out already last time, Brandon, I mean, this is not the last occurrence that we're going to get of these ideas in Wolf. Uh, clearly, even here right at the, the beginning of Wolf's writing career, he's really interested in these ideas of astral projection and whether or not it's Possible. I mean, we see him here, you know, using the character of Johann to think scientifically about this problem. Even, even as he's invoking instances of people who were thinking mystically or, 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 you know, in experiencing this phenomenon in a in a mystical way. Wolf, the engineer here, is trying to think about this scientifically, and we're going to see him do this again and again. Uh, you know, I hesitate to say that we've seen him already do that because I don't know that we really had a scientific approach to this in a story by John V. Marsh that. Maybe it was more of the the purely mystical side of things. But now we're seeing him think about, would this be possible? In what way could a body do this? And, and we are going to get more of that. It's really cool to see that here in Silhouette.
1: Yeah, that's right. And really early in his career, we have this deep interest in holograms and holographs, uh, and that being an explanation for this sort of phenomenon. So I wonder if this kind of idea has been on his mind for a really long time, like a lot of his adult life.
0: Yeah, and I don't think we're done seeing that either. In fact, I know we're not done seeing that and actually we're going to get a little bit of it in in this story as as well. I mean, we've already had the the three-dimensional screen uh which is something that we also had in the hero as as werewolf as as well. Yeah, we're seeing all of these things. Wolf has is really interested in many different types of ways, I guess, that we could project ourselves uh, in a sort of full sense uh, to places that we are not. It's uh, it's not a problem that I've ever given a whole lot of thought to. I mean, I, I just casually accept that this is how Star Trek works and uh, and uh, I move on. And uh, speaking of moving on, we should probably move on to the, the next scene here. Uh, what comes next, I will say, is a long and complicated, almost mystical sex scene. So brace yourselves for that. One of the bridge crew is at Johan's door to let him know that the captain has summoned him, even though he's off duty. Uh, And it doesn't matter that he's off duty because so is she. But before we get to that, there is also the important news that the leader of the away team is coming back to the ship to get supplies. And while he's here, he's going to give a report and the captain may actually return to the surface with him. So that's pretty big news for anyone who might be planning some sort of mutiny. And we know that at least one group of people are doing exactly that. But let's get to the sex scene. And this is going to take place in the captain's quarters. Uh, we've been surmising already that there is some system of obligatory sex on the ship, and it seems that the captain gets to be a part of this system. Uh, there's some awkward small talk when Johan gets to her quarters, and uh, a lot of this has actually some really interesting world building material that I want to point out before we get into the the mystical sex part of this protracted sex scene. Uh, the first thing I want to point out is that the, the captain is listening to a piece of imaginary future classical music called The Forest of Toys Suite from Pleasure World. Uh, Pleasure World was the real name of the first leisure satellite. I mean, you know, real name in this fictional universe, I should say, but it's the the name of this first leisure satellite. And I take the phrase leisure satellite uh, to mean an orbiting... Pleasure world for wealthy people, basically. And on this pleasure satellite, this leisure satellite, they planted trees there, which of course grew out of control in the zero gravity environment. And the the management then decided to hang stuffed animals on them and create puzzle routes through them. I guess mazes. And this description doesn't sound all that different from what Neuerdraht is like, this kind of messy tangle of vegetation that's behaving in ways that it doesn't on Earth. Also, interesting is that the composer of this piece of music was later imprisoned in an Arctic labor camp. So, more prison stuff here from Wolf. This is something we talked about back in episode 100 ish that we've been seeing crop up a lot. It's not a major part of this story by any means, but here it is in the backstory here of this musical composition. We also get to learn about drug bugs, uh, which are genetically engineered crab lice that uh, do what crab lice do, but in the process, they inject the victim, user, maybe, uh, with some kind of drug, uh, maybe a hallucinogen of some sort. And the captain likes to use these during sex, which uh, which we'll get to in just a moment. But I want to pause on this world building stuff before we really get to the sex scene.
1: Yeah, everything leading up to the sex scene is just awful. The captain is reclining and listening to the music of a man later condemned, perhaps because the music reminds her of an ideal of pleasure in some capacity though the satellite of love that wolf describes here sounds really unpleasant in real <laughs> life and this this like kind of ca- this scene with the captain reclining reminds me of like a female zap brannigan from futurama i don't know if, uh, <laughs> if, if many of our listeners have watched that show but she just seems that way she has that kind of pomposity in this scene up close now that Johan is kind of close to the captain in this lighting he recognizes that she's had some cosmetic surgery done to accentuate her eyes and then we get this moment where the captain can't remember where the captain can't remember what, whether she's had Johan up to her chambers before or not but Johan remembers and this is and this disparity in memories between Johan and the captain is is really, it really accentuates the power differential here. That she is just in this kind of pleasure world. She's running the ship um, and she's just having sex with her subordinates and so much so that she can't remember, though time has elapsed. But Johan remembers. And this indicates that this time, there were three times that he was there in the first year But he hasn't gone back. That those moments have seeded some form of trauma, that there's still distinct memories for him. It's not just something that came and went. And I think that Wolf is using this moment, this kind of memory differential, to point out how awful this system really is of compulsory sex with subordinates, uh, with and fraternization on the ship. But also something is made explicit in this moment that has been seeded throughout the story, though we haven't really mentioned it or paid attention to it at all. Uh, Here we learn that Johan stopped being on the captain's rotation because his leg was crushed. We saw earlier in the story that he has a bad knee. His leg isn't quite up to snuff. It still works. uh, But there must be some visual scarring on it or something visually unappealing to the captain that she didn't want him to return to her chambers. There's one other odd moment uh, before we get down to business here in this scene. Johan is experiencing a strange sensation in this scene. It's like a vision. And this happened once before. And again, this is something we didn't really bring up, but it's worth bringing up here. Uh, this sense of having this vision, this override of sensory memories happened when he was thinking about Neptune, when the ship was flying past Neptune. And he was thinking about all the imagery around Neptune, or maybe some statue or uh, relief or something like that of Neptune that he had seen. This vision that he's having, though, is also of a sea. It's of a ship clinging to life. I don't have anything to say about this here. But I think these moments are really important and we'll want to look at them in the discussion in light of the way that the story ends.
0: We're going to see even a little bit later in this episode and then also a few more places still in episodes to come covering this story that Wolf really has some interesting ideas about the nature of space of, of interstellar space, space beyond the solar system, and what being there, what being on a journey like this might do to the psychology of people. And that is going to be a really fun topic in the the discussion. I, I do wanna I guess really emphasize this business with Johann's knee. You know, we have seen already in our you know hundred plus episodes devoted to the chronological exploration of the the worlds and works of Gene Wolf that he has a lot of characters that have a GIMP legs, that have have bad legs. Uh, This is something we're going to see again and again. I mean, this is a real trope that Gene Wolfe leans on here. And I do think it's interesting, we don't ever actually learn Johan's last name in this story. So, I'm speculating that it might be Castle, right? This is John Castle <laughs> all, all, all over again, right? Who also had uh, injured himself and had a bad leg in the middle of Operation Ares, and very clearly was a JC character of some sort. Uh, we may want to speculate, I guess, about the I don't know the Jesusness of, of Johan at some point. Oh, well, we uh, certainly in, will in be the doing that. Yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: Yeah, how could how could we not? But I felt like it was my special burden to to raise that question here, or raise that uh, idea here. I do also want to point out one thing uh, as well that. It's it's not just that he's got this uh this bad leg and, and maybe that you know he's got some scarring that's that's unattractive to look at. She also mentions that he's going bald, which one, rude. Uh, and two, I think this is one of these places where we get some sense that because of the cryogenic freezing, Johan is one of the few people maybe who has been on the ship been active on the ship and awake on the ship the entire journey so that he is biologically 17 years older than when they launched. But not everybody on the ship is. And it seems that the captain may be prefers to sleep with people who are chronologically younger than that because they've been cryogenically frozen, people who have not begun to bald yet as they've approached middle age, which which Johan clearly has done. So embedded in this uh, this uh, this nice joke, I guess, about baldness uh, that, that both of us can relate to is an interesting uh, world-building bit about how the, the ship is run, uh, which I, I found really interesting.
1: Yeah. And I do want us to keep in mind as we move through this story, the importance of the time when people wake up. So Johan has been awake the whole time. Goethe has been awake only a few days at this point. And we're going to meet people who wake up even more recently. And I think that that is important to what's happening in the background of the story. But I want to save that conversation for the discussion because I haven't quite figured it out just yet.
0: Right and I I will I'll correct you uh, right now though of course we'll have our ducks in a row when we do the discussion I think it's Gretchen who's been awake only for a few days uh in the uh in the galley not uh, not Gerda the the yeoman
1: Brit is the yeoman <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, right, right. Grid is a yeoman. I think Grid and Gerda are both yeomen, But Gerda is actually Johan's uh, yeoman. I guess we'll talk about what yeomans are when we get to the discussion uh, as well. Or actually, maybe we'll do it next episode because I think that'll matter. Well, all right. So now we are really at the sex scene, which is fueled by drug bugs. And so, uh, at least from Johan's perspective, this is hallucinatory it's maybe mystical even. So his experience of this is that he is with a woman named Marcella, whom he knew on earth and and for whom we have seen him pine before, though it's not something we've brought up in the, the recaps. Johan and Marcella are together in this ever-shifting fantastical landscape. First, it's the the country of clouds, then it's the country of wind, and then finally it becomes the country of meadows and gardens. And then he's out of it. And he finds that, in fact, he's hanging upside down between two pieces of furniture in the the captain's quarters. And the captain's orderly hands him a perfumed sponge to clean himself off. But Johan is not really capable of taking any sort of physical action right now. And so when he doesn't do anything, the orderly just does it for him, just cleans Johan up himself, uh, which sounds really quite uncomfortable uh, to me. And Johan is even confused here. He asks where she is. And and by she, in this case, he means Marcella. But the captain thinks that he means Grit. And so she says that Grit is on the bridge and advises him not to go out there just yet because she won't want to see Johan again for a while. And so I I guess we also learn a little bit more about the the sexual mores on the ship
1: in this scene as well. Right. This introduction of drugs into the mix is even more upsetting than probably what we thought was going on before not only is there an inherent power dynamic at play here where people of higher ranks can request those of lower ranks to their rooms to have sex with them uh but they also can drug them sort of at will these people have no real agency here i mean consent is an automatic assumption and it's kind of a really dark system i think i i it's super uncomfortable and especially when we see Johan, who doesn't use drugs, he also doesn't ever end up uh, following through on any of his requests to grit, to have sex. But we'll see in a little bit the way that drugs seem to be part of the norm of these sexual encounters as well. But this section is not just about sex. In other words, it's not without purpose or just telling us about the sexual dynamics of the people on the ship. Marcella is the name of someone that Johan was romantically involved with back on Earth, maybe even in love with. We don't really get a story here. But Johan is essentially having a psychedelic experience, and he's thinking about being with Marcella in a place that is clean, a place like a garden, rather than the destroyed world like Earth has become. And so we get this garden city dichotomy here, which is always interesting to find in uh, wolf stories. And from this wonderful hallucination where Johann believes he's with his true romantic love in a place that is beautiful and natural and overgrown with flowers and grass. And here, I can't overemphasize enough, Earth has been trashed by people and urbanization and things like that. That is clear in the story. Out of this hallucination, though, Johan is thrust back into this room of these harsh black and yellow colors. And then he's wiped down with a towel, you know, by somebody else. And then I get this sense that the captain has done this maybe to disrupt Grit and Johan's fraternization, to kind of cut at the feelings they might be developing for one another. It's, it's a really complex scene that Wolf has written here. When we met this captain earlier in
0: the story, I thought she was awesome. And I thought, wow, she might make it pretty high on my uh, my list of, uh, of best, uh, my, my ranking of best Star Trek captains, but uh, uh, not anymore. Now she is definitely at the bottom. I mean, she is the worst type of boss, the worst type of manager uh, imaginable in the sense that we have this clear evidence right here that she is not only aware of, but interested in and maybe even invested in the personal relationships of her low-level subordinates, which is just terrible management, right, to to be a part of that system. I mean, one of the jobs of, uh, of a CEO is to remain completely aloof from that sort of thing. I mean, if you need someone uh, in leadership to be involved in in that in order to address problems or to keep things from becoming problems. I mean, that is literally what you have an exO for or uh, the uh, NCOs are for this as well, right? There is a structure built into any military unit for exactly this thing that is meant to keep the CEO completely isolated from this because this is the only way that you can uh, retain your ability to command. And it's really crazy to me to see her. N- Being so invested in the relationships of her, of the people on the bridge and other people on the ship as well, but then also to see her. Having sex with subordinates, and in fact, thinking about Star Trek, right? This is a huge deal in Star Trek Voyager, uh, the only Star Trek show to feature a, a female captain. There are a number of storylines about Captain Janeway's inability to have any kind of sex life, any kind of sexual or, or romantic fulfillment, because she has to stand aloof from her crew. And I actually really enjoy that that storyline. It's a it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting topic for Star Trek to approach. I guess Captain Picard has some of this as as well, and here that's just totally thrown to the wind. So really terrible leadership here.
1: Yeah. I I do want to say Picard gets to go on cool archaeological adventures and stuff like that. (laughs) And then he has all the, you know, and his experiences include all the trappings of uh, an adventure novel, including a kind of femme fatale. But the Janeway Chakotay stuff, even though Chakotay builds Janeway a hot tub, she and, and like there's an episode where the rank system is just broken down. It's just the two of them on a planet she still is acting like this leader, like they will come back, they will solve this. And she just has that attitude of command. And it's really fun to put her in contrast with this captain, who is, as you pointed out, deeply involved in the petty concerns of her low-level officers, instead of being above them to the point where she can say, I don't care if you're having this relationship issue. I don't care what your feelings are. This is your duty. Get to it. Uh, and and the way that she is drugging one of her subordinates in order to have sex with them, and then that drug also ma- masks The sexual encounter, so it's not even her really that Johan is having sex with, that her subordinate is having sex with, is just absolutely awful. This is the worst possible situation I can imagine in general, but also specifically for a, a chain of command to get up to.
0: Yeah, that Voyager episode you're you're mentioning there—that is the the one where Chakotay builds a bathtub for Captain Janeway. Uh, Valerie and I have not actually covered that on Lower Decks yet, but I think that is Valerie's single favorite episode of Star Trek. So, uh, so that's coming, and I don't know, maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll try to bump that up in the uh, the queue here, uh, just so that uh, we can uh, we can direct uh, fans of Silhouette to to go see this in in action. There are a couple other episodes. I don't know, maybe we'll do a series on on that. That would actually be kind of fun to do. Well, uh, let's get back to uh, the issue at hand here. Let's get back to Silhouette. We have come now to the longest single section of the novella. This one runs 10 full pages, and so this is going to bring us to the end of what we're covering today. When Johann returns to his quarters, he finds five people waiting for him, uh, including Heinz, but uh, Emil is not there this time. He doesn't know the other four people here besides Heinz, but they aren't wearing rank insignia, and therefore they are violating ship regulations. But of course. These are mutineers. They're they're insurrectionists, so they don't care. And Johan is also, I have to say, very interested in the sex of each of them. Uh, there are two men, one woman, uh, about whom we get physical characteristics, as we've been getting the whole story. Uh, which, of course, as we've said, we will talk about in the discussion episode. And then one person whose sex he can't determine, and he's very obsessed with this. Uh, all four of these people are are on the bed. They're sitting on uh, Johann's bed. They leave the chair then for Johan. And of course, it is now dark in the room again. There's only one light on. And Heinz has a, a monologue to deliver here. And again, I'm, I'm just going to read it because it is awesome. I mean, a, a lot of the writing of this actually feels very play-like. That might be something we want to take up in the discussion as well. There are so many great monologues here. Uh, this is one of them. Hopefully, I will do it some justice. Ever since this ship penetrated the orbit of Pluto, there have existed covens and brotherhoods, sisterhoods, families, lodges, and societies of those willing to acknowledge that the coarse, physical world is no more than an illusion, of those who have sought a deeper meaning and a true wisdom, and who have known that the void of space is no void, but is peopled by beings of great power, ancient beings who traverse it instantaneously at will, needing no ships, and who are not unfriendly to those who, humbling their own pride are willing to approach them in a proper spirit of reverence. So there's a lot going on there, and uh, we're going to let Brandon unpack that in just a moment, but let's get Johan's response to this first before we pause. So Johan has been invited to join some of these organizations, he says, usually by Emil, but he's always refused. And he also would like some clarification about these creatures who live in space, the, the creatures these people think live in space at any rate. And he asks if they've communicated with them. And the woman says in a thousand ways, which is obviously hyperbolic. <laughs> and, and, and Johan actually calls her on it. He says, name five. And I love this. This is the sort of tone that I wish I took with, with students more often whenever they say things like throughout history or since the dawn of time or whatever. From uh, time also...
1: immemorial.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, There's a whole compilation of these types of phrases. But this, this demeanor here too, this reminded me a lot of, of Mr. Million's uh, pedagogical style as well. But she, she does it. She actually has five ways ready to go. And, and so let's let's give her list. Uh, first one she says is in dream. Uh, then by the intermediacy of the gifted, of whom she is one, right? So mediums is is what she's talking about there. By things seen in water under certain conditions. By the planchette, uh, the planchette's that little piece of wood that you use for spirit writing or, or use with a, a Ouija board. And the last thing on her list then is uh, visions induced by certain liberating medications. Now, Johann, of course, has just had a vision induced by certain liberating medications, right? He's just had uh, a vision induced by the drug bug. And he says as much, but then, and, and I'm quoting here, another voice, much like his own, but not his, with a quality that suggested the crumpling of thin, stiff tissue paper added, but what do you want from us? So, This is an interesting development. We're going to take that up in a few minutes. But first, I think we should explicate the uh, cosmic horror and divination stuff that is suddenly happening in our space exploration story.
1: Yeah, it is a really strange development. And it seems to me as though there's kind of an open secret regarding the existence of aliens or otherworldly entities, or just cosmic entities, by which I mean, they don't belong to any world. uh, Living the, the, which means you know they don't belong to any world. They just exist as consciousnesses in space, maybe. This is an open secret among members of the ship. And this contingent, Heinz's contingent, and Emil's maybe, have taken to worshiping these beings. And it could be that because Johann has attracted a familiar spirit, as it's called, uh, he's brought one of these beings on board or, or found a way to commune with it, that this contingent seeks him to be, as we've seen before, an intermediary. There they don't seem to be making any distinction among these beings. They're just there's a class of beings above humans, maybe between humans and gods, this would be angels, though we know Heinz is a diabolist. Maybe a reformed one. These could also be demons. Um that there is just some class of beings whose powers of consciousness whose powers of being, whose powers to have powers to impact the material world are beyond that of human ability. And one thing that we haven't really talked much about yet is that this story was written as part of a novella collection called The New Atlantis. And it seems to me as though rather than writing a a science fiction novella playing on themes found in Francis Bacon's utopian novel, themes of utopia, of of a scientific of a world ruled by reason and and scientific processes, you know, his hopes for a new vision of the world. Wolf is playing with the notions found in the psychedelic movement and the emergence of new agey types of thought of kind of a safe form of Wicca or witchcraft or the, you know, emergence of mediums and Ouija boards and spirit talkers and mentalists and all this kind of stuff, there's a lot more emphasis on the spirit world and its potential than there is in focusing in what a utopian world looks like. And so in terms of the idea of Atlantis being some haven for reason and scientism found in Bacon's utopian novel, this is more like Atlantis as part of this new age movement and so in some ways this story in this section in particular I think can be read as an indictment of weighing the scales too heavily on you know like woo-woo spiritualism rather than taking action in the the world these people just want to submit to something that is going to control them uh, and kind of give up their ability to take action to be passive mediums for other spirits, whether they're good or evil. And and this contingent of spiritualists are really worshiping beings who have no desire maybe to be worshiped, who maybe have their own agenda that is mysterious and unknowable, that don't need to move human beings around in order to achieve what they're trying to achieve. This goes back to our passage about these levels of analysis of what is being. At what level do you count a being a being? But these spiritual beings, whatever they are, these consciousnesses can be reached via the five ways mentioned above. I think we can take that as kind of an objective truth in the story. And this bit also reminds me again of Solaris. These people, these cults are trying to use the scientific method, or some repeatable process, which is, you know, like a paranormal version of the scientific method, in order to get to know something that may end up being entirely incomprehensible to us. This is a major theme in Solaris. And it could be that they, the they who are out there uh, beyond our comprehension, want nothing to do with us either. So this is a very strange section, a very strange development. I probably muddied the waters more than cleared them, but there's just a lot that Wolf is doing here.
0: Yeah, I don't know if New Age is really quite the the way that I would I would describe this. I mean, to me, this really seems like Wolfe is engaging with the the spiritualism that was really popular in the the late Victorian and the the early Edwardian period. The, the sort of thing that uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was was super wrapped up in. We've seen him invoke this before in Operation Areas. In fact, I think we we gave a, a pretty long uh, a bit of discussion to the sort of the history and 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 uh, uh, philosophies of this and practices as well of of, of spiritualism, there we've also seen him be really interested in these ideas in uh, a story by John V. Marsh as well. I don't just mean the astral projection, but the Atlantis stuff, right? We get that whole list of possible places that uh, the Shadow Children maybe have have come from, and it includes all of these places that people in the 19th century were really obsessed with these sort of uh, these sort of pseudo scientific, uh, imaginary, speculative. Uh, uh, prehistoric civilizations that may have been technologically advanced, technologically sophisticated in ways that you know present day humanity is not even capable of, but but that most traces of their existence have been wiped from the archaeological and historical record, except for you know this one this one crank in Minnesota who's figured it all out or whatever, and uh, and so I think that's what Wolf is in, engaging with here. We've certainly seen him uh, do that again, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun to try to really uh, place all of that in context or place the way he's using that in the, in this story in context with what we've seen him uh, do with this material before when we get to the discussion episode.
1: Yeah, that's all true. And I think what jumps out to me here where I'm pulling on this kind of new agey stuff is that he's using psychedelic experiences, incense burning, uh, maybe out of regulation, haircuts, I don't know, (laughs) to, uh, (laughs) to explore or to highlight imagery of the counterculture of the you know 1960s and 1970s. So I think that's also at play here. He's kind of cramming these things together.
0: Yeah, I think that's certainly true. And and obviously calling something the new Atlantis at this time. That's what the editor of, of, the, of the collection had in mind. And if there's one thing that we can say definitively about Wolf, though I don't think we have said it before uh, on the air, is that every time we take a look at these these anthologies, these edited volumes that Wolf is participating in, where we know he was asked to contribute a story, or maybe saw a call, but but almost certainly was asked to contribute a story. He takes the, the the title, he takes the idea, the sort of core unifying idea of the collection and tries his hardest to subvert it as much as he possibly can. right. Wolf wants to color outside the lines, but then still insist, right that he is colored within the lines, right? He was he's got kind of a, a barracks lawyer uh, or sort of a d and d rules lawyer, maybe a, a sense to him, right that I, I have I have done that what I have written is certainly within the letter of the brief, even if it's not within the spirit of it. He clearly took a lot of delight in, in doing that. We saw that with uh, Kiwis Laputa's Zoom as well, which we did recently over on uh, on Patreon. Well, all right. So, this voice that is not quite his own is carrying on a conversation with Heinz and company while Johan has no control over it and, and even finds it hard to concentrate. And Johan fears that he's insane or, or he thinks that maybe the, the drug bug is having some lingering effect. And Thinking about the the drug this reminds him in, in in fine Wolf as Proust fashion, uh this reminds him of a time when he saw Grit doing drugs with Helmet. Uh, Helmet, by the way, is the leader of the away team. I've been avoiding using his name to minimize uh confusion. Uh you know, we ourselves are getting confused about grit, Gerda, and Gretchen as we go. <laughs> so we've been trying to minimize the confusion as much as possible, but we need to know that his name is Helmet now. And Helmet uh is basically Riker, I think. This uh uh, memory, This thing that he's remembering, this happened at a time when Johan had a sex appointment with Grit, but she didn't show up. And so he went to her room and he found her naked with Helmut and snorting some sort of powder that Helmut was giving her. Uh, Johan was was hurt emotionally by this, but he saw that Grit was happy. And so it was hard for him to, to be mad, especially when it became clear that Helmut was, was tired of her. And so he and Helmut cleaned Grit up and got her dressed, and then Johan took her to his own quarters while she was still under the effects of the, the drug. And she just babbled, and she talked about herself as Joan rather than as Grit, which uh, Johan speculates may have been what her mother called her when she was a baby, uh, because sometimes young mothers like to use those old-fashioned names, even though psychologists warned against it. Uh, this is a crazy detail here. It's something I'm really interested in talking about in our rural building section of the discussion for sure. But all right, so now we are back to the cosmic horror, weird uh, occult space mutiny present. When Johan comes out of his reverie, one of the group members says, you will not help us then? But Johan didn't say that. And it's clear that they have been talking with the Shadow, or the Shadow has been talking to them independently of Johan, or at least independently of Johan's consciousness and, and will. They presume that the Shadow spoke for Johan, and now they say that it's good that Johan is willing to help them. But they want to be clear that they mean it's good for Johan, not that it's good for them, because they do not need Johan's help or the Shadow's help to overthrow the captain and take control of, of the, the ship. But if Johan doesn't join them, then in the aftermath, they'll probably kill Johan and his followers. But if he does join them, he'll get to vote in their council. And Johann astutely observes that it's likely that the members of this council are just going to end up killing one another until only one is left because, hey, that's how revolutions usually work. And it's way safer for him to have nothing to do with them. So uh, here we are getting a little bit of Wolf's political critique as well, something I always enjoy uh, getting. But it doesn't really matter because the shadow definitely says that they will not join this mutiny. And it is one of the men who looks an awful lot like Mr. Clean, by the way. Uh, Mr. Clean, I will call him, stands up to shank Johan, but the shadow is faster and knocks him back onto his seat. And so now they leave. And when they are gone, Johan immediately calls up to the bridge to let them know about this mutiny. Right. Like he thinks this is serious business, that this is urgent. This needs to be addressed immediately.
1: Right. Once again, we see that the shadow has some kind of physical form and it can impact the material world in some way. It's not just a bit of consciousness hanging around. It has its own will. You know, it's not just this ghost that's haunting the ship and that's attached itself to Johan. It is a being with its own uh, desires, its own motivations, but it seems to be helping Johan. Th- there's also this weird moment in this scene. It's a weird moment uh, as, as a kind of a liter- as a literary artifact more than anything else. Heinz responds to Johann, and, and Wolf writes that, Heinz quotes this line, lying spirits all whose rancor runs blacker than their reach. This is a citation that I could not find anywhere. I scoured, you know, every resource I could think of, to find this quote. And I would love it if one of our listeners knows what this is referring to. The best I could find is a poem by G.L. McKenzie called Lying Spirits about Christian hypocrisy. But I wonder if this line is from some future book that's been getting traded on the ship, or some translation (laughs) of a book that Wolf has. I hope someone can find this uh, annotation here because it's completely eluded me. Right. I, I was looking for this as well and,
0: and could not come up with anything. And you know, I even scoured several translations of Goethe's Faust, assuming that that must be where it's from. Uh, I did not go back and, and look at it in German. My German is not good enough to, to read Goethe uh, in, in German, but just didn't find anything that even looked like this, such that it might be a, a different translation. And this is not something classical or medieval that I'm familiar with, which you know is not everything, certainly. Uh, but you know, I'm thinking about how Wolf used a very strange and I thought not very good uh, translation from the Aeneid to lead off uh, tracking song, for example. And we were able to track down whose translation that was. Uh, but here, yeah, I, I came up
1: empty as well. Yeah, bizarre. So if you're a great internet or library sleuth, uh, please let us know where you think this came from. Just to an aside here, there's another odd bit of business apart from everything else to, in this <laughs> section. Uh, and it's that one of these cultists slash revolutionaries does not have an, an identifiable gender to Johann, Wolf describes this person as a, a sexless being, and the matter is brought up more than a few times in this section. Again, we have to examine the gender dynamics of this story and the norms that Wolf is looking at in the discussion. It's so strange. Uh, but I also want to point out here that one of the women of this group is part of the higher class or would have been part of the higher class on Earth, indicating that she is an officer on the ship. Um, and this is revealed to us by the fact that she's almost as tall as the captain. So she might. So this group has attracted maybe high-ranking members of other sections of the ship uh, that this cult is not about rank. This is about belief. Right, and We also
0: get a sense here of just how big the, the ship is, right? Because if this person is a high-ranking officer like that, and, and Johan is an officer, but Johan doesn't recognize this person, then that means that there are a lot of people on this ship. And also that the ship is is pretty compartmentalized, right? That there are uh divisions or, or you know just unit, maybe we'll say, within the ship, things that people are responsible for, and that there's not a lot of of, of intermixing of those groups necessarily. And so Johan is a bridge officer, and so that's who he knows mostly as other bridge officers and doesn't maybe know the people who work in whatever unit this is, even the people who might be in charge. Of that, of that unit. Well, now that these mutineers are gone, it is time for a reckoning between Johan and his shadow. And I, I think I'm just going to take us all the way to the end of the, the section right now. So Johan monologues at the shadow, telling it what he surmises is going on here, which is that it is a life form indigenous to Neuer Drott, and that it came to the ship in the shuttle when the, the shuttle returned after dropping off the away team. And Then it found Johann and is trying to use him to get back home by possessing his mind and triggering the latent teleportation ability that that some, uh, maybe even all, humans possess, but which only a few have ever been able to activate themselves— there are some premises here in this explanation that may not be entirely sound. I'm not sure this is the uh, the Occam's razor explanation for what is going on <laughs> here, but it's what Johan is working with. Uh, but that is part of what's going on. Right? Johan has been feeling like he's losing his mind, but now that he has seen other people respond and react to the shadow, he knows that this shadow is objectively real. And the, the shadow is slow to answer here, and it doesn't get to say much of anything before they are cut off by a security team knocking on the door. At the door is Grit with some security people, whom she dismisses as soon as she sees that there's no immediate danger here so that she and Johan can have a private conversation about a number of topics first is that Grit doesn't really understand why Johan is freaking out about the mutineers. I mean, she even asks him if this is the first time he's been asked to join a a mutiny, because apparently this sort of thing is going on all the time and nothing ever comes of it. And Johan would know this as well, she says. Johan would know this if he didn't just sit around by himself all the time, not talking to anybody, therefore not knowing anything. Johan does know, however, that Helmut is back from the planet and he wonders why Grit isn't with him right now. But of course, the captain currently has a monopoly on helmet, at least for a little while. And this is pretty petty of Johan to bring up. And, and all of this just prompts Grit to really chastise Johan about his sexual mores. Uh, clearly, right, he's having a hard time with the sort of, I don't know, free love, I guess, the free love customs on, on the ship. She says that she actually prefers Johan to helmet, but sometimes helmet can be fun and, and generous, and he's better at conversation than Johan is. But Johan is weirdly monogamous and he needs to get over it. That's anyway, that's the, the gist of this conversation. Though the I guess what she really says, I think this is this is worth quoting, right? What she really says is worth quoting here. So so let's do it. Here's what she says. That's one of the things that bothers me about you. Every time you touch somebody, every time you touch somebody's body, you think well, you know what you think. And I could not help but be reminded here of the Cameron Diaz character from Vanilla Sky, who says that when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise, whether you do or not, in what is definitely one of the creepiest movie scenes of all time. It's a scene that has kept me awake uh, more <laughs> nights than, than it probably should have, I guess. Uh, but we should also note that uh, really, while this conversation has been going on, they have also initiated a sexual encounter that is happening between the lines of their conversation. But all right, the, the last thing they talk about goes back to the ubiquity of mutineers on the, the ship. And and Grit admits that she has gone to a lot of meetings like this, uh, mutineers, secret societies, other occult stuff, because it's something to do. It's a kind of entertainment on the ship. And all of it is wrapped up in ritualized drug use as well. She doesn't think that anyone really believes any of the occult nonsense. People are really just there for the drugs and, and also for a sense of, of community, right? Just to be friends with people. But there is actually one group that the captain thinks is different, that she thinks is worth taking seriously. And that's the people who talk to the ship's computer, the people who talk to the overmonitor. And of course, Johan has just done exactly that. And so he's very interested in this. And so are we, naturally. And what's going on here is that the ship's computer is trying to take control of the ship and it has recruited people to help it. This is uh, mostly people who like to spend a lot of time on their own personal computers. And now, Johan is incredulous about this because He's a bridge officer and he even just had sex with the captain, and yet the captain has never told him any of this. But Grit says that most of the officers do know about this, and the reason that the captain hasn't spoken with him about it is rather obvious. He's the sort of weirdo loner who would be susceptible to being recruited by the computer. And this makes me actually wonder a little bit about why the captain chose now, after many, many years, to summon Johan to her quarters and then drugged him.
1: Yeah, it's all very strange, and it even ends in a stranger way. There's a coda to this section, and and it has to do with this uh, sexual encounter that Grit initiates, though I don't know if it is fully accepted by Johan here. He keeps on trying to push her off, but this is the end of this whole section. This is what Wolf writes. In Michelangelo's painting, The Creation of Adam, a floating Jehovah stretches forth his hand to the reclining Adam. On the ceiling, Johann saw acted out the reverse of this. His own shadow reached up from behind him to touch the floating shadow of grit. For a moment, it held the position, and he began, awkwardly, to raise his own arm in the same way, subtly embarrassed to think she might notice that his shadow no longer followed his movements. The arm had a second true shadow of its own, weaker and grayer than the black outline behind him, that, even as he watched, seemed to send a wave of dark strength into Grit's pale shadow. It's very strange. I guess I guess that is sort of the sex scene between Grit and Johan. Uh, it's describing their shadows commingling more than their bodies. And there are a few takeaways from this paragraph. First, it seems though Grit has attracted the creature and it may now also be attached to her on some level, or a piece of it is. So that's something to keep an eye on. But the thing that jumps out to me the most is this moment where Johan starts imitating the shadow's movements. Earlier, we saw how the shadow talks about how it is doing its best to understanding Johan's will and desire and to help him. But now we have a reversal of that, and I'm not sure who was leading who anymore, uh, if Johann is now doing the work of imitating his shadow. Obviously, there's more to this section than just this scene, this commingling of shadows. Uh, and maybe that could be Wolf's take on a sort of spiritual mystery of sex, certainly something that the, the Catholic Church teaches. Many Christian sects teach that as well. But religion on the ship has been corrupted by, to the point where people like Grit only join these cults or become members of them because you get to you get to have ritualized uh, drug and sex magic events. And Grit is essentially, in this moment, having pity sex with Johan, maybe to take his mind off the whole mutiny, mutiny issue, because it's clear that she's joined up with one of these groups, or maybe multiple of them, And I think she's downplaying her involvement in them quite a bit. And Johan is going through some emotional sea changes as well. He's recognized just how far he is outside of the loop of information in the ship. I mean, he's been awake the whole time on this whole mission for all 17 years. And only now he seems to have violated some real taboo, which is talking to the overmonitor, And only now he's discovered that all of these cults, which he kind of knew were around, are trying to gain control of the ship. I mean, all of this is very strange. There are so many elements at play. And we're only at the beginning of Wolf's pile-on of action and casual revelations. That's all going to come up in the next two episodes right here is definitely where we can
0: see wolf musing on the the counterculture of the the 1960s and maybe even the counterculture of the 1950s as well things like the the beat movement and 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 so on where we have Wolf, who just likes to be by himself and read G.K. Chesterton poetry <laughs> and uh, really be into monogamy and spiritual experiences and takes a look outside and suddenly realizes that everyone else out there is super into drugs and free love. And he's suddenly feeling isolated and maybe left out of the, the direction of the, the culture of the, the people that he is stuck with the the rest of his the rest of his life I think that there is a, a bit of that going on here though I don't think that that Wolf actually is someone who sulked about
1: that the way that maybe Johann seems to be doing here yeah and I'm not even sure if Johann is sulking so much as he feels left out he just feels left out of the experiences of other people and I think that's something that maybe Wolf might have had a sense of I, we don't like to overly. Biographies these stories that 's not a word i 'm just going to make it one <laughs> but uh, I do think that that feeling of having intelligence and understanding and uh, empathy means at some points when when your morality or ethical life diverges with th- your ability to empathize with the reasons why people are taking up these activities, engaging with this moment. You understand this cultural crisis maybe that people are in, and yet you can't participate, but you have real empathy. That is a dynamic that I think Wolf is exploring through Johan here in this story. Yeah, we really don't like
0: to overly biographize these stories too much, but I will say one more thing on this topic before <laughs> we, uh, we sign off for the, the day, which is uh, just as we've been been thinking about this out loud, uh, it occurs to me that there might actually be a bit of commentary about cons here and maybe especially world con, right? We, a uh, long time ago, we were commissioned to do that George R.R. R. Martin story, The Way of, of Cross and Dragon, uh, that we read in Martin's volume, Dream Song, and he had uh, some interesting things to say about that story. In the introduction of the volume, but one of them described what being at Worldcon and winning a Hugo was like. And it may not be all that dissimilar to the ship that Wolf is describing here. So we can maybe imagine Wolf, who is in his late, 40s at this point, uh, going to cons where people 10, 15 years younger than him, people who don't have a, a wife and many kids back home uh, are perhaps doing something a little bit different with their uh, their Saturday nights at the Worldcon than Wolf is doing. So I don't know, there may have been a bit of uh, inside baseball going on here. And perhaps <laughs> all of this was even just meant to be a little funny for some of his uh, his younger friends in the-, the new wave.
1: Yeah, that could certainly be the case as well.
0: Well, I mean, now that we are speculating about what Gene Wolfe got up to at world cons in the 70s and 80s, uh, I think it is time for us to call it quits today. So
1: that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other shows at claytemplemedia.com. Don't forget to stop by the forum or our subreddit, Clay Temple Media, to talk about this section of the story or what you think of Silhouette so far. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. There is so much going on and so much that we don't have the time to get into. Maybe something jumped out to you in this section or previous sections that we didn't cover. Come and talk to us about it on our forums. And we want to thank our Patreon supporters once again for making this show and all
0: the shows that we do on the network possible. If you're not already a Patreon supporter, we'd love to have you join us. You can come over now and uh, check out the most recent installment in our ongoing coverage of Gene Wolfe's Letters Home from the Korean War and also our our ongoing exploration of the Christmas-themed SF stories by Connie Willis and, of course, dozens and dozens of other bonus episodes that you'll get immediate access to. As we said at the top of the show, we're going to be taking our usual holiday break right now. So we will return on January 5th with the first of three more episodes on Silhouette. And that brings a great time to check out some of those other shows that we do. If you haven't read Neil Gaiman's Sandman Saga before, that was a great time to join me and Brent as we go through it on Hanging Out with the Dream King. Or you could join me on ATOS, where I've got episodes on the Brian Michael Bendis comic book Powers and on Madeline Miller's uh, really beautiful, really gorgeous novel song of Achilles coming up soon. Lots of stuff on the network to listen to. But until next year, we greet you and say happy holidays.